Welcome to the Get Out There and Get Known podcast. Join Pam Perry, veteran PR strategist, Emmy award-winning producer and publisher of Speakers Magazine, who will show you how to crack the code in getting out there to get known. Each week, she either interviews her media friends, PR colleagues, or she just goes solo, offering you strategies on publicity, publishing, and platform building. So listen up to hear how to get booked on media places and on superstar stages. Now, here's your host, Pam Perry. Hey, this is Pam Perry, and I'm here with two guests today, which is very unusual. It's the first. Not only is it first for me to have two guests, but also the first that they are mother and son, both in what I call the media mavens. They are the the mavericks in this field that are now mavens in the field. And we're going to talk today a lot about the Black press. This is Black History Month, and I am Black 365. We talk about Black people in the black press, black speakers, black subject matter experts all the time on the show on Get Out There and Get Known. So let me tell you a little bit of backstory, how I know Jill Day, used to be Jill Day Foley, but now just Jill L. Day, and Aaron Foley. I knew Aaron uh, before probably he was born, definitely like when he was little. But I met Jill when she was at the Michigan Chronicle years ago, and she was an executive there, I want to say managing editor. And I used to call on her and pitch her and talk to her. And was, she was always the utmost expert. She was there for about a decade, there for about a decade. And we've known each other over the years and she's definitely moved into different spaces now, but I've known Jill. And then one period of time, I was a journalism teacher at Renaissance High School, enter in Aaron. Knew Aaron when he was little, but then now he's in high school and he's running things in the journalism department. So then that's when I met <laughs> And he was running things. So now we look at years later, we got Jill who started, I guess you say, started Aaron off in that journalism bug. And now he is currently doing wonderful things as the director. Well, just just so that you know, I have six pages between the both of them to introduce them. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I'm like, Aaron, how do you have just as much as Jill, right? But it is it's one of those things where he's had a very mediocre, mediocre, medi- meteor, like a meteor, not mediocre, okay, that was <laughs> meteoric. <laughs> yes, there you go, career, and, uh, you know, from working with Black Magazine and working, uh, he's written a book, um, have you written a book? It's in process. Yeah, I was like, can you even feature writing a book? I contributed to one of his books. Yes, yes, but he's written a book. He's He was a chief storyteller in the city of Detroit, so he's done a lot of things. But I want to say, he got it from his mama, okay? So, Jill, kind of tell us a little bit about how you got started in journalism, how you fell in love with the field, and where you are right now. And then, Aaron, you kind of tell us where you are right now, how you got started. Okay, well... um, I think I got started, um, kind of fell into it because I was running from uh, the medical field, which uh, my family is heavily into. And um, that was probably one of my first um, struggles for independence uh, was uh, declaring that I was going to follow my my own way into uh, journalism. and not go into nursing, which was uh, what both of my parents had done. 
Mm-hmm. I had one cousin um, who recently retired from the Detroit News, Sean Lewis, who was in the field. Um, but because of the age difference between us, uh, we we kind of ran in the same circles, but not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I I had someone who I could look to, but not really. Yeah. And, uh, and and quite honestly, I was going for uh, filmmaking and doing documentaries because I was a broadcast major. Ah, okay. And high school-wise, Renaissance was not around. Were you at Cast Tech? I was at Ypsilanti High School. You're Ypsilanti. Okay. Someone just said everybody. Everybody thinks I went to school in Detroit or Hamtramck or Flint. Nope. I'm from Ypsilanti. I went to school in Ypsilanti. I went to school in Inkster. Okay. I did not go to school in Detroit at all. <laughs> Lauren Sanders says, hey, go Renaissance. And then that's so much, someone chimed in, hey, cast sex. So, you know, so, so and Lauren Sanders was in the Black Media, um, Student Black Media Coalition with me um, at Michigan. Ah, okay. All right. That's it. That's it. That is cool. So, Way back when. <laughs> So Lauren is on LinkedIn right now watching as well. So tell us how you, you were in film at U of M and then eventually you your first job out of college was at where? At the Michigan Chronicle. At the Michigan Chronicle. You stayed there for about a decade. And so uh, close now, to it. Mm-hmm. And um and at the Chronicle, um, thanks to Al Dunmore, um, and Longworth Quinn and um Aretha Watkins, Rita Griffin. Um, Marie Teasley yeah, and yeah. and the great late great Sam Logan. Yeah. Um, uh, those were my mentors. Though um, these were the people who pr- really provided my training. Um, Danton Wilson, Mike Gooden, um, Steve Halsey. Wow. Uh, um, yeah, I can I can call the role. Um, and and Raymond um, Allen, who, who graphic designer par none, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just the Chronicle was a training ground um, where, and the Black press in general at that point, because we told the stories that no one else was going to tell, and uh, that sounds cliche, that sounds trite, um, and like a trope, but it truly was. Um, we were the only paper that published during the um, rebellion in '67. Wow! Um, and we you weren't there then. Let people know. <laughs> I, I wasn't. I wasn't there then, though. Um, I have my own separate memories of the rebellion in '67, but that's a whole different story for a different day. Um, and we really were a voice for those who did not have a voice. I remember Mr. Dunbar used to say. You should be able to go out the front door, go a block in one direction, a block, make a right, go a block in that direction, make a right, go a block in that direction, and make a right and come back to the office and be able to write at least 12 stories mm. from anybody you saw or, or whatever you saw or whoever you saw while you were out there. So let me ask you what, so and, let me ask you John Moore that was also related to Greg Gilmore? Greg Dunmore's oh, dad. Family. Love it. That is one of the things probably worth oh, thinking yeah, about. Yeah. Well, well. Right. 
So, Aaron, let me ask you real this. When all this was going on, your mom was working at the Chronicle. Where did the talent and the gift of writing or the inkling for writing come for you? Um, <laughs> it might be hereditary. It might be just, um, you know, I was always... I had I, I, I had to go way way back to you know when I was like five or six and having some idea of what mom did from nine to five every day. I knew that um, you know she would go into a building, an office, and and do whatever. And then Thursday, a, a paper with with her name and several other name names in it, and words were just there. So someone was writing that, and so. Um, I used to, when I was very little, I used to just write little short stories. I used to make little books, um, fold things in half, um, you know, fold like printer paper in half and have drawings and, and stuff on it. And, um, I, I'd always liked doing that. I'd always just like creating stories and, and, um, first byline was in the Chronicle. It was, um, wow. I think it was the MC times. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, which that was, was when the, the, yeah, that was the student paper that the student run news. Well, at the, when I was at Renaissance and I taught there, that was what we would help the journalism students produce. Mm -hmm. well, actually, may I, may I interject? It was in the little Chronicle pages. And then your first byline was a piece that you did on the transportation, Oh, um, on the highways and stuff being closed down for construction on all of the major outlets into the city. And because I remember Engler's office um, called down there and they were accusing me of having written it for you. Whoa, that's how good you were here. Yeah, that's <laughs> and he was seven at the time. Oh my God. <laughs> no, okay, the, so I, no, I was seven in the Little Chronicle. I was in seventh grade for the, 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 the piece on Engler. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, you were younger than that. You were still at um um Chrysler. No, I was at no, I was at Cornerstone when I did the Engler thing because I was middle school. The oh. other Engler thing. So. Oh, there was so, another Engler thing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you're too young for the memory to to be going right now. So what are you doing now in terms of what you're doing with the Black Press? Because we want to kind of like really fast forward in terms mm -hmm. of where it is now. So give us, so your first job out of college was what, Aaron? My first job out of college was at, I was a copy editor at the Lansing State Journal in Lansing. Okay. Oh, um, okay. How I got to where I am now, um, I was doing a fellowship, a journalism fellowship at Stanford in California and then uh, was looking for a job. I wasn't sure if I wanted to come back to Detroit or not, but um, I found the listing um, here at CUNY to direct this Black media initiative, and the job description was a little bit of everything that I had done. Um, mm. CUNY here here at CUNY, we had worked with um, CUNY City, for. oh City University of New York. Mm -hmm. okay. um, they they were looking for someone that had experience starting something new. I did that. Um, they were looking for someone that had experience working with different funding streams. I had done that, but specifically looking for someone that had worked in the Black press. And I was at um, Black Magazine 
as editor for about two and a half years. Um, so what I do now is um, uh, with the state with with how black press outlets are now. We're talking specifically about the legacy newspapers like the Chronicle. Um, magazines like Black, but also, you know, you have a new wave of startups and things like that. Um, they are, Basically, they all need a lot of help, whether it's getting more funding, adding more staff, whatever the issue may be. And my job, along with the folks I work with, is to think of ways to help them grow. Do we connect them with funders? Do we develop new programming for them? What can we do to, you know, the, the, that's what we constantly, the refrain is, um, how can we be a supportive partner to all different types of community outlets, but I'm, I'm specifically tasked with with Black community outlets. Mm -hmm. And why is the Black press important? I'm going to say, ask you, Jill, first, and then then Aaron, you kind of give us the idea. Why is the Black press? Why, you know, some people say, well, why do you need a Black press? Well, you, you know, this is 2021, you know, why do you need Black radio? Why do you need Black newspapers, Black magazines? What What is, we know why we needed it back then, Jill, but why today? As long as there is bias, as long as there is prejudice, as long as there is racism, as long as there is any kind of ism, there is going to be a need for an outlet for the group that is lacking a voice. Mm -hmm. Love it. That's true. There's also always going to be a need for a watchdog. Because that was one of the things that I think that the press um, and and that was the special niche was that was uh, any kind of cultural press, black press, Hispanic press, Arab press, um, is that the function, another function of the media is also to be a watchdog. And I think we kind of lost sight of that along the way, and everybody wants to assert their own uh, opinion and and own uh, viewpoint. But there's also an accountability factor that I think has gotten lost along the way in in the in the effort to be politically correct or to be whatever. Mm -hmm. they, they, they have to be certain boundaries. And NABJ, which all of us are a part of, National Association of Black Journalists, has been around for over 40 years. And they are part of part of the task. They're doing that as well. But it's different from what Erin is doing in terms of really helping them be sustainable. The black press remains sustainable. Is it part of it as well, giving them technical assistance, Erin, in terms of digital? Do they need to be brought more up to speed in terms of the digital space? Absolutely. So. One of the big things that um, we see, and especially, you know, from the, an industry standpoint, um, when, you know, let's say the last like 15 years at this point, when all the internet advertising took over newspapers, right? Remember like around like 2006, 2007, 2008, everything shifted online, including mm -hmm. the, the ad budgets, the classifieds, all of that. Um, then you started seeing people laid off because the print product was bringing in less revenue. Um, so as much as those seven, your mainstream seven day a week newspapers were hit, the weekly papers of any background, but especially the black papers, which have historically been getting the shorter end of the stick anyway, um, right. were hit twice as hard. 
So if there's layoffs at the big papers, then there's layoffs and, you know, attrition and all of that at the smaller papers, which were already small staff to begin with. So Mm -hmm. now in 2021, you know, some of the legacy newspapers um, might have like, might have (laughs) have like three or four people working for them. And all those people are wearing multiple hats. The publisher is the editor, is the managing editor, is the lead reporter. And then the, the managing editor might be selling ads, might be doing doing social media, all of that, um, which leads to questions of we have this black paper, we have this um, presence in these communities, but how much watchdog journalism are they doing how much information are they putting out there are they relying heavily on wire content now don't get me wrong a lot of places are doing the work um but the question becomes sorry i hear (laughs) (laughs) my dog is asleep so i I... (laughs) well i mean what i was saying was you know a lot of places are still doing the work and there's actually a few um black outlets that are growing but my job is to, you know, really target the ones that, you know, want that have great ambitions or want to return to a, a, a golden year where they had multiple people covering multiple things. Because even though those black papers might be shrinking, the black communities are not, you, you know, the, the, there, there, there are audiences that will still need, um, like mom said, a new source, a new source that will give voice to the voiceless. Yes. Yes. And so and, and don't get it twisted that, even back in the day, we had to wear multiple hats then too. Okay, <laughs> so oh, yeah. that's that's nothing new. But you didn't have social media, so you didn't have to be the social media director and also do do the multiple. But, but in, a, in a way, we did. In a way, we did because I sold ads. I had to take pictures. I had to run the equipment. I had to lay out stuff with those wax rollers and the whole nine, and and run the paper out to the printer. So. <laughs> So what I want people to know, especially black people, because they are not, there are, and I'm just go from the standpoint of a, of a publicist, right? So, so many clients love being in the black press. If they are in the Chronicle, if they were in the Jet, if they were in Ebony, if they were in uh, any of these class or in any of these, they love it. They, they're, they feel like I have just really arrived. But when I ask them, do you subscribe? Do you uh, do anything to promote? Like, even if you just see that their story has just landed on Facebook, do you share it? There is not that much camaraderie around that. And I want people to understand just, just because you want to be in it and you see them rolling, their advertising is not paying enough for them to continue. And that's really what I wanted you all to talk because it is needed. And it's not just for Bandy's sake so that they can get their pictures in there for whatever reason, but it's needed, especially right now. Black Lives Matter trended all of 2020, right? It's like that was like the t-shirt that everybody wore, but it was like Black Lives really mattered or Black Voices really mattered way before that. And that's really, when you really look at it, that's like the history of how we got anything out was through the Black press. And I'm talking like just journalism in terms of print. Of course, obviously there's radio, there's Kathy Hughes, and then there's television as well but in terms of like where people are getting in the underground the underground railroad railroad that was the black press so i want people to understand that it's not just like oh you know the black press is the substandard that's where people get their start in in journalism no that's where 
really, if they get their start there and they go somewhere else, they should come back and assist the black press to be better because it's needed for our community. So that's really the, the whole point of really what I want to have you all talk about more so that, you know, because you've been in it, you know, Aaron, you were in it like your whole life seemed like you're writing your stories at seven years old. But <laughs> it, as far as like you've worked at other newspapers and working at Black Press, press what do you see the difference is that they, and, and you, you're probably putting this strategy together, what do you see that they really need now in order to pull it all together to be that um, stellar thing that we look to when we're looking for black news, when we're looking for our black perspective. I think, I mean, the one thing the press needs is more people. Um, right now, a lot of organizations and publications just do not have the revenue to hire additional journalists or, or editors, photographers, even folks to actually sell the ads um to bring in more revenue because there a lot of these folks are still trying to keep the lights on and, and whatnot yeah. um but i think a bigger conversation um i'd like the industry to address is um why do we treat the black press as substandard why do we look at it as a launching pad or a training ground or in many cases um not a not a place that's valid in terms of um the coverage that they offer. Right. Um, I've heard multiple things about, and you know, we see it in Detroit too. Um, multiple things about, you know, you see the same journalists from whether it's a journalist from the mainstream paper or a black paper, they're going to the same city council meetings, they're going to the same press conferences, they're covering writing the same stories. But the perception that a, a black paper or, or a, a Latino paper, whatever, um, has bias. Um, because um, because they're writing for such a publication, or they're not, you know, they're not big enough, they're not relevant enough because they're not a seven day a week publication that, you know, you you, you can is, is delivered to your door every week and, and blah blah blah. I mean, there that's well, the audience is taken for granted. That that's that, and that's the industry problem that. Um, you know, I, I would like us to address that just as much as we address some of the other other things um, that are going on. So one of the things that I see that um, the Black Press is doing more of is really doing a lot of collaboration. So the NNPA, which is the National Newspapers Publishers Association, they are all, well, most of them are independent Black newspapers, but they all come together uh, as a group to really band together in terms of sharing wire stories and maybe even talk about advertising strategies and things like that. Do you find that the NMPA needs a little bit more, for lack of a better word, uh, updating or support as well? Because if NMPA, which is like, I guess, a total of maybe 50 black newspapers across the country, mm -hmm. how do we help that organization? And even so like the NMPA, NMPA had historically created a wire service, the black wire service. They, they, they are the originators of that. Wow, wow. Because there had been none, there would not be one um, had it not been for the black press and specifically um, in conversations with the late great Louis Martin, um, who had started the Chronicle, um, a lot of the black sportscasters were responsible for there being a black newswire, so to speak. Wow. The creation wow. of that. So one of the things overall, too, the bigger conversation, Jill, Aaron, is the black press, right? NMPA, 
NABJ, uh, what you're doing there with that, with um, with the, where you are, Aaron. And then there's another thing that just entered. I just saw recently. I guess the Michigan Chronicle one. It was the Google initiative. Explain to what was it, Aaron? It was a, they won some kind of grant from Google. So I mean, Google, Google in the last year, and when I say last year, I mean since uh, last summer. <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of organizations are sort of tuning in and realizing that they sort of have a civic or philanthropic duty to support um, uh, media that serves audiences of color. So Google routinely gives out um, grants. They recently had a vaccine disinformation uh, or vaccine education, uh, something around vaccines, which I suspect the Chronicle uh, might have gotten their sharing. If not that, the Google News Initiative, uh, I know some people over there, they, they just regularly are, are, are giving out a grant for this or offering some training around that. What we're seeing, though, is that some publications are a little bit more aware of these types of opportunities than others. Um, there are more than 300 and counting uh, uh, Black media outlets, digital newspaper, radio station, uh, low power TV station, I'm thinking like WHPR, you know, channel mm -hmm. 33, stuff like that, um, that uh, are, they may not be members of NNPA uh, right. because NNPA, uh, for all the greatness of NNPA, it limits itself to a newspaper. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think- Well, Speakers Magazine, ben Dr. Ben Chavis did allow Speakers Magazine because we're monthly to be in, it, be in NNPA. But it was print, so yeah. yeah I mean, right. yeah. So I mean, there's a there's it's 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 limited to the print print operations, which you know that that you know that, not to knock that, but I think what we're seeing now is a lot of digital operations that are wondering mm -hmm. where do we fit in, how can we serve our communities just as well, but they don't have any affiliation, they can't join an NPA necessarily, ah. or they or they may not also have the ability to go after some of the things like, you know, going after some of those Google grants or going after those some of those things. They they may they may be like one or two uh person news sources uh trying to cover a specific black community and um they may be limited as well. Are we talking like uh, Blavity, um, Madame Noir, Geo? Uh, Blavity is fine. They got they got funding up the wazoo. Uh, <laughs> the, um, there's a number of uh, let's say Chicago has a few. South Florida has quite a few um, digital startups. Um, there's something called the Black Wall Street Times in Tulsa. Oh, yeah. There's the, Have you been uh, out of Baltimore? Um, no, out of, there's one in Tulsa. Um, oh, okay, the, the original Black Wall Street. Okay. Yep, the, and and that that's new. A lot of these places have just opened in the last, let's say, two or three years. There's there's a new publication I like a lot. I know the the guy, the publisher that runs it. He's only like twenty five, twenty six. Uh, Black Catholic Messenger, which tracks every all the news around Black Catholicism. A lot oh. of the presidential appointees. Um, turns out they're they're catholic so he'll write a little startup i mean okay. write a little write-up that'll say like you know so and so appointed to hud who went to x parish or x this um is now doing this um but these are one man two man three person operations right so uh, they can grow the audience they can grow a following or what have you but um, the industry again going back to that going back to an industry question that we ask you know what is a black press outlet is it a 
Or is this is it still the model of a weekly paper that comes out every week and is but and is owned by like a sync stack or a, a real times or something like that? Or can it also be can it also be uh, some of these newer things that are coming up? I think the question is I, I think the answer is it, it can be both, but I think there's still a little bit of resistance to to sort of welcome these the the newer folks into into this this ecosystem. It is. I've gone to a lot of NMPA um, meetings, not a lot, but a couple of them, and it is resistance. And they are um, family-owned businesses, and they 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 are used to doing things a certain way. And they they basically, you know, if the father owned it, now the daughter owns it, and then the son owns it, and so they are resistant to it because the change is hard for anyone. But what you were saying, you said blavity is fine. Blavity is really millennial. I mean, it's a it's a it's a great news source or a website that at a certain point in time do you remember michigan chronicles like okay we have a website but then basically it was like it needed a lot of work so then you had to hire people to really do that part and it all comes down to resources it really comes down to resources but but even before resources it needs support and it needs to have relevancy for it to have the support and so relevancy is key is one of the key things that will really have to see like what is the purpose of the black press if i already have my news from cnn why do i need the black press and so jill kind of said that it's like really for that whole part of just really understanding that we have a voice so we're wrapping up here we're like at 29. so one last question and this is for the people who are like i want to be in the black press what are the things that they should do in order to pitch someone to be in a black newspaper in a, in black media what is well, obviously one of the things that they have to study the, the publication but i'll give an example there was a um, um a black which you you know you used to be a part of aaron um and i think i just saw you in the last issue you, you had an opinion piece in the last issue of black magazine yep, i still do a <laughs> i still do a column for every issue you do a column in them and so I had Billy Storr on uh, one of the podcasts. And so I asked him, I had a judge, Leonya Lloyd, um, was pitching her book. And I said, I'd like to know if she could probably get in this issue or whatever. He said, well, you know what? What I really would like is. And so you have to think about what that publisher, what that journalist, what they're looking for. Okay. It's like the publicist is pitching one thing, but what they really need is this. And they had a little section, I think it was called Detroit Expat. And so he said, what I'm really looking for is a Detroiter who has been in Detroit is doing well and they are now um, doing their thing in another city. Like maybe you would be a Detroit expat. And, and <laughs> okay, so so what is it? What did Detroit teach you to be a success? What has it taught you and how, you know, whatever, whatever. So that was a story that I said, okay, again, they don't have a big staff because I am journalism trained. I wrote the story. I said, I'll find you that person and I'll write it and I deliver it to him. That's what he needed. It wasn't so much about what I needed. So what I want to tell people is that don't always look at what you need, look at what they need, what they're looking for, and to help them. If their staff is like you said, it's a two or three, you know, that's, team operation. That's the that's the blessing and curse of of doing black media in Detroit. And in there are oodles, um umpteen stories to tell about black Detroiters. Um, which and they should all be told, but um, when I was at Black, I was I was getting at least thirty emails a day <laughs> about about each one of them, and 
um you know when, when i was at black the black had historically only had one staff member which was the editor and the support staff the design the ad sales all of that weren't weren't black employees they were metro parent employees because that was a sister publication usually there was only one full-time staff member when i was there that was the first time that we had two two full-time staff members plus maybe an intern and our freelance pool and just just imagine i open up our mail thing every day and i can't get to pam if you send me an email and you call me said what happened to that email that I sent you on Monday? It's Thursday. I gotta go pages, pages before <laughs> before I can find it, unless I use a little search function, um, because that's just how many pitches we got. So it, it's it's definitely a balancing act in terms of as if you are pitching yourself or a client, trying to you know figure out what the editor wants. But the editor, no editor ever wants to turn people down. Right. It's, it's right. never personal. It's never like you're not interesting enough or whatever. Um, but it does be, it, you know, from my perspective, it did become a game of, OK, who everybody is interesting, but who's the most interesting? Who, who has a story that really stands out? Who has something that um, and also, you know, OK, once we pick the subjects that are interesting, what killed me the most was. Um, if I got someone that was persistent about pitching and then their client was um, either uh, we got to reschedule, I'm unavailable, can't do this, we want to mm -hmm. do it this way, do, like you, you I'm, I'm trying to work with you. I picked you out of all these people and your, you and or your client is being a little bit more difficult. I've got so much time. Um, I'm, I'm limited for resources. It, it's, it's not it's not hard for me to say well you know right. i got three other people waiting in line exactly. we'll see you we'll see you next month so yeah. <laughs> so and also uh, oh, go ahead no no i was gonna say um one of the things i used to discover or or bemoan was that keep it keep, keep it brief keep it relevant keep it focused because one of the things that I remember either in doing pitches or receiving pitches was people get too broad and, and just want to encompass everything and I want to save the world and I want to do this and I want okay, that's all well and fine, but can we focus on <laughs> why this is relevant to this trend that's happening in the city or this piece of legislation that's coming down the pike or how can you address this need that we have mm -hmm. um, or, or address this problem that's what, what is the solution that you're offering mm -hmm. and, it's not and why is your solution better than anybody else's and, and please 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 stop trying to get a hook up all the time <laughs> yeah yeah and that's and really it comes down to ego people just want it's, I call it ego marketing. People are just like, I just want to be seen. I want to be, you know, just hook me up. I want to be in pay. I, you know, it's like, no, no. What are, what value are you offering? And and talk about ego marketing. So this is just a side note. I thought I, for, I forgot about this, Aaron. When you called me that one time and you said, we're doing a, <laughs> we're Sister doing a cover story. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a Norman Rockwell painting and we'd like you to be the cover. I was the grandma. <laughs> oh my God. I'm the grandma with my friend who's also the granddad. But it worked out fine. It had no no story, didn't write anything. It was just, I was just on the cover, right? Just 
we reenacted Norma Rockwell picture with the all that. How many people saw that? Now I've been writing Gil, Aaron, teaching them for years. Done all <laughs> that went so like crazy. Like I was just I didn't say anything. I was just on the cover. So anyway, I just just in terms of how people think it was like I saw you on the cover of Black magazine. I'm like, oh my God. I'll, I'll say if I can just say real quick, I, I promise 10 seconds. The one thing I love the most about working for Black, I, I say it publicly to folks who don't know, but since this is a conversation among journalists and, and folks in media, um, are the return rate of Black, like the number of the number of issues that we sent out and then the number of issues we got back at the end of the month was always like one or two percent. So we would ninety nine percent of the issues we sent out to Black because it was free and it was we put it in well traffic places. Everyone would pick it up. Everyone would pick it up, and we would get so few copies back of every issue before and after I left. Um, I think that kind of speaks to the brand power that Black has, and also you know to put in a good word for the Chronicle. Um, you know, the Chronicle has been able to expand off of its name by doing all of those events, 40 and 40 and pancakes and politics and uh, women and this and, 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 doing, and doing this uh, because now where the now where I think there's disconnect is uh, not just the Chronicle or, or anybody in particular, really, it's just like a lot of the black press publications still have the brand recognition. But how do they convert that brand recognition and, and the name that they still have in their communities to actually increasing the, the strength of the journalism that they put out? You know, the Chronicle does an event exactly. every month, but, you know, that's, you know, but does does what's in the paper uh, every week, uh, does, does it, 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 are, 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 the, are the two are the two aligning is, is, is the is the brand in the events still aligning with the brand of the paper and that I think that's a question a lot of outlets are, are, are trying to figure out right now and magazines as well because black enterprise does their events and they do great events but they right. are now just digital now they don't even publish anymore not a physical copy anymore. So again, and, and Black Enterprise was able to strengthen, you know, build a brand off of their calendar, just like Metro Times did, you know, um, uh, only on a different platform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They did, they did, and they and they have now, you know, talk about uh, using citizen journalism, I guess you would say. But Black Enterprise writes daily, probably three or four five stories a day on the web, but they use, they they um, have freelance writers, but they don't use the, they don't pay the writers. There's probably a few writers that are paid, but most of the writers are not paid and they, they are just so excited to write for Black Enterprise that they will do it for free. And that's the power of using or leveraging their brand. The stories are still good, but they don't have to pay for the content that they're getting from the freelancers and the freelancers then shared and that sort of thing. So it's a different kind of model. We didn't even talk about pay, pay to play and, and that that's another different kind of model. But that, that's a different story for a different day. But the other, um, I see a lot of, and as, this is me as an editor, um, I see a lot of laziness, especially on our website editing. And this is not just the black press, but this is overall. Um, I see a lot of lazy reporting. I see a lot of lazy editing. 
And it just irks my soul because I'm like, we're doing a disservice to everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, when you don't fact check, when you don't grammar check, when you don't punctuation check, it's just a disservice for everybody. One of the laziest ways that I see doing an interview is a Q&A. So when <laughs> this is maybe this is just me. Some people like them. You send the questions out. Aaron's looking at me like you send the questions out. I like a good Q&A if it's a strong question. If it's good, but you get an answer. But no, I see what you're saying. If you just send the questions by email and get them back. You know. And then they print it. Hmm. That's the story. I'm like, oh, okay. Let me Let's try and fool somebody. Come on now. <laughs> give me some narrative. I'm like, give me some narrative or something. Don't just print it. It's like, okay. But if it is a Q, I mean, obviously there's some good Q and A's. I mean, obviously they are. But but I'm talking about just general, like, tell me your name and give me this and that. I'm like, oh my god. Do they even think of some good questions to ask so that the person can pull out the good answers? So anyway, that's just my thing. Those, so, those census bureau questions. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, no, no. So I want to just thank you all. Uh, we had a couple of PR people over here listening as well. I had Sierra Black, she's over there. She is she's, she's listening as well. But I just want to thank you all for doing the first interview together. And Jill, you did a great job raising your son. I always say that, that I'm <laughs> so proud of Aaron Foley. He is like deep stuff. And keep doing it. I mean, I've got I've got like eight pages. I mean, you're gonna add like eight more pages. I know by the by the end of this decade of your bio here, all the stuff that you're doing here. I was like, wow, this is all of this stuff. I mean, because you've done a lot, but it's all it's all really going into the same place. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just you know you were you were even like one of the things that says was recognized by Wayne State Journalism Institute for Media for its accomplishments in 2016. So I went to Wayne State, so I kind of saw that. I said that was cool. That was cool. But, uh, that's, but that's one of the greatest honors I know. Um, that I because I didn't even go is, to Wayne Jim State. Is tough. Yeah. yeah, Jim is tough. So so to reach Aaron, you want to uh, get in touch with him, Aaron K Foley at gmail dot com, and uh, people can reach you via via your email there. And if they have some uh, ideas that they want to submit to you for what your current position is right now. AKA Jill, you want to you want to give them your your uh, information as well? Hit <laughs> you up on LinkedIn. Um, either on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on um, I'm Divine Twelve Four on Instagram, Jill L Day on Facebook. Okay, Jill, Jill Day One Hundred Four at gmail.com. Jill Day One Hundred Four at gmail.com. Because we didn't really talk about what your current thing. You're an ordained minister now. So um, we got to have you back maybe to talk about that in terms of how that transition happened. But I kind of saw it <laughs> in a way, you know, it's someone that's part of the mission, part of the mission of what that you love what you're doing to make a difference. So I just want to thank both of you all for the work that you're doing and the work that you're doing for the black press specifically and for black writers. Because I know you're still mentoring writers as well, Jill. You probably can't help it. But you, You've been doing it forever. Uh, <laughs> even your other son is probably eventually going to be some kind of writer, some kind of way. So uh, that's just in Stay tuned. <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. So is there anything else, Aaron, that you'd like to add that we, we uh, need to um, probably know about in terms of what's coming up next for you? 
Uh, real quick, uh, we do have our state of the black media analysis and report coming in March, um, which will is exactly what the title says in terms of what is what does black media look like in 2021? Where does it where has it been? Where does it need to go? Um, I am not sure of the exact release date, but it okay. will be in March. But I'll, you know, it'll be all over my social when, yes. when it does. Yes. So, yes, I would love it. And then follow you on what's your social media handle? I'm I'm Aaron K Foley everywhere. So that's okay. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, my website. Uh, <laughs> that everywhere. I love it. I love it. I will say this one thing about when you went viral talking about a publicist. I can't remember. Won't say the names, but they they went in on you on something. And uh... <laughs> which time was <laughs> which one? <laughs> and he and he was like, he says, I can't believe this person just did a. Uh, uh, went off on me inside my Twitter DM about something, and it went viral. Oh, I rem- I, I think I remember that. Okay. Yes. yes. <laughs> what kind of publicist does LOL and why can't you do this? And it was like, yeah, you just there like I cannot believe this. So yeah, you we we a lot of our publicist friends we shared to each other like this is not what you do. Okay, this is not what you do when you want to get a story. So, but the, yes, keep it real, keep it one hundred all the time. We love you. We'll be getting that uh, report. State of the Black Press. I love it. Thank you all so much. Thanks for joining. Uh, get out there and get known. I appreciate you and I just know you forever. And I want to make sure during Black History Month that I have this mother and son duo on talking about media and the Black Press. Thank you guys. Bye bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Get Out There and Get Known podcast brought to you by PamPerryPR.com where you'll get insider tips on how to build your platform, pitch the media, and promote yourself with confidence. Head over to PamPerryPR.com and get the exclusive video training on the seven must-have marketing materials you need before you pitch in order to be considered in media places or superstar stages. PamPerryPR.com, where you help you shine like a superstar.